0: Well, we are continuing with our study through Paul's first letter to Timothy. Today, we are continuing to look at 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Uh, Paul sent Timothy to pastor the church in Ephesus. There were teachers there who were leading the believers astray with strange doctrines. So as Paul tells Timothy the things he needs to focus on, the in the process, he's laying out for us the proper ordering of a local church. He's emphasized the need for sound doctrine uh, with the biblical gospel at its core. He's emphasized the need for prayer as well. It's in chapter 2 that the emphasis on prayer especially comes in, and it ties into the verses that we're considering this morning as well. But we also see in these verses in chapter 2 that Paul gives attention to the roles of Christian men and Christian women and the church. One of the reasons that Paul felt the need to address this issue is something that was apparently being taught by the false teachers. It seems they, they were encouraging the believers to throw off the authority structures that they so choose, and and um the, the, the ones that God had put in place. And Paul addressed this issue in multiple ways already from the very first verse. He reminded Timothy and the readers of this letter that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. You can't get any more higher confirmation of authority than that. Paul also addressed the issue of authority in the opening verses of chapter 2 when he urged that prayers be made for kings and those who were in authority. Another reminder of the importance of God-ordained authority. Well, that's the context for Paul making distinctions about authority in reference to men and women in the local church. We'll get to more of the details of that next week, but we've already seen in this passage that Paul bases his statements about, the, about authority in the church on God's creation of Adam and Eve. He points out that it was Adam who was created first and then Eve, and that has clear implications, Paul will tell us, about how the church is to be, or, uh, to be properly ordered. And that ties into one of the fundamental and obvious points of these verses. God created man, male and female. Man is the highest of all God's created order. We saw last week in Genesis 1, um, that just before the creation of man, we read this, God said, let us make man in our own image. The let us speaks to something of a divine council of the triune God that's referred to just before the creation of man. That's significant. We're also told that of all God's creation, only man was created in the image of God. That's significant. And then we read in Genesis 1 God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times the scriptures tell us that God created man, and especially the idea of male and female. When the Hebrew language wants to emphasize something, the, the highest possible way is to use a threefold repetition of the word. So the creation of man as male and female alike yet different is foundational to understanding your life and understanding the created order. So this clear biblical and biological truth is basic. When it's denied, personal and societal chaos will result. Now there's something else that's central to this passage in 1 Timothy 2, godliness. We can get so caught up in the things in the verse that may seem to be controversial to us, that it's easy to overlook how central godliness is to everything that's here. So today we're going to look at what the scripture has to say in these verses about men and women pursuing godliness. So, let's read First Timothy 2, 8-15. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for men making, for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Three things we're going to be looking at this morning. First, every believer, whether male or female, is called to live a life of godliness. Second, there are specific applications for men and for women on how to live a life of godliness. And then third, we're going to see the hope that every man, woman, boy, and girl has, and that hope is the Messiah. So our first main point this morning is this. Every believer, male and female, is called to live a life of godliness. The word godliness shows up twice in chapter 2, first in verse 2 and then in verse 10. Altogether, Paul uses this word nine times. In, this, in these six chapters of, of 1 Timothy, it's important in what he has to say to bring godliness into the picture. Uh, in fact, besides using the actual word godliness, Paul actually describes the substance of a godly life many other times in these six chapters. In verse 2, Paul makes the goal of a godly life to be, an, uh, to be an important objective in the prayers that are prayed for civil magistrates. That's where he says, pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So he speaks about how important it is that Christians embrace a godly life. In fact, this godliness should define every aspect of our life. He speaks of all Godliness. And we should pray that the civil magistrates would allow Christians the freedom to live their life in all godliness. In verse 10, Paul particularly uses the term godliness to describe a woman who has committed her life to the Lord. So I think that godliness is one of the underlying, even unifying themes of this chapter that's important to understand if we're going to understand what Paul is emphasizing here. So we need to think first, what do we mean by the word godliness? Jerry Bridges wrote a book. uh, I was looking at mine, I was 1983. It's it's entitled The Practice of Godliness. It's a book I would highly recommend. Matter of fact, anything that Jerry Bridges wrote is a book I would highly recommend. Um, Well, in this book, Bridges defines godliness in a very simple way. It's on your outline. Godliness is devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. Devotion to God that results in a life pleasing to Him. We often think of godliness as being virtually equivalent, maybe with Christian character, and there's some truth to that, but in reality, it speaks of Christian character that is motivated by devotion to God. Living a godly life is something that every believer, male and female alike, is called to pursue. So to live godly, first we need to see this. One who is godly will live in the fear of God, have a love for God, and be motivated by a desire or a hunger for God. You can't build Christian behavior patterns in your life if you don't have an inward devotion to God. Because without that inward desire to please God, the outward things we do are going to be empty, hard to sustain, and even hypocritical there's three aspects of the life of one who's devoted to God. The first thing we'll we'll mention on that is this. There needs to be a fear of God. John Murray said this. He says, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. The Bible uses the phrase fear of God in a couple, couple ways. On the one hand, it's a dreadful fear of God's judgment. It's the recognition that because he is holy, and I am sinful, I deserve his wrath, I deserve his condemnation. This is a fear of God that really every unbeliever certainly should have, but for the most part do not. When we put our faith in Christ, this dreadful fear of God's judgment is addressed because on the cross, Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God for our sin. As a result, every believer is no longer under God's condemnation. Jesus Christ was condemned on our behalf. But on the other hand, the fear of God is reverent worship. This morning we sang the hymn based on Psalm 100, which begins with the phrase, Before Jehovah's Awful Throne. Now this is a different use of the word awful than what we normally use it for. It literally means full of all, A-W-E. It reminds us that we should be full of awe as we approach the throne of God. That's what worship is. That is the fear of God. We should never come to the Lord in flippant ways. We need to remind ourselves of who he is, which includes remembering that we can only come into his presence through Jesus Christ. So the fear of the Lord is an important aspect of our worship, both corporately and individually. Secondly, when we think about godliness, the godly person must have a genuine love for God. Now, that's going to tie right on to the fear of God. Because as we remember the great great gulf there is between ourselves and God because of our sin, then we're reminded of God's love for us in sending his son to purchase our salvation. And it's God's great love for us that actually produces love in our hearts toward him. Now, in some sense, this even goes beyond the, the truth that God loved the world that he gave his only son. That is a glorious truth. But as Christians, we see his love directed toward us. God loves me. Christ actually died for me. You can see that Paul did that in chapter 1. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he makes it personal, of whom I'm the foremost. I'm the foremost sinner, he saved. He made it very personal. So he was rejoicing in God's love for him, and he knew he had been a notorious sinner. We need to have this, we're we supposed to have the same kind of love for the Lord. That's part of godliness. Thirdly, the godly person must have a true desire or a thirst for God. This follows, again, from the first two characteristics, because we move from a fearful dread of God Because we know we stand guilty before him to a reverent love for God because he gave his son to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf on the cross. And when we know the Lord in this way, we will naturally begin then to love him. As the scripture says, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. There's a sense of gazing on his beauty, on his glory. Paul spoke of his love for God in Philippians 3, 8, when he says, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of just knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So the one who is godly will live in the fear of God, have a love for God, and be motivated by a real desire for God. Well, it's this devotion to God that leads us to the next point. True godliness will result in a life that honors God in tangible or practical ways. One who fears the Lord will recognize that they always live in his presence. There's great encouragement in knowing that we are always in the presence of God. But in addition, the one who lives in godly reverence of the Lord will be more conscious of seeking to live their life to honor him because they're living in conscious awareness of his presence. So the fear of God actually leads us to live in ways that are more consistent with what his will is, because we're aware of his presence, and there is a reverence. There's an awe of that. Well, the one who loves the Lord, same kind of uh, result in a little bit different way. The one who loves the Lord is going to focus on being obedient to him. Jesus told us, He said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So the one who loves him keeps his commandments. That's the outworking of it, keeping his commandments. You can't truly say you love God if the main focus of your life is disobedience to his word. Love for the Lord results in a person embracing righteousness as a way of life. That's true godliness. So the one who has a great desire and thirst for the Lord is one who will spend time with the Lord in his word. That's one of the out, that's an outgrowth of that. They'll spend time in prayer. They will join with other believers in times of worship. So godliness is devotion to God which results in a life that is pleasing to him. And I think we need to see that this emphasis on godliness is a major aspect of what's going on in this chapter. It is easy to get caught up into the things that seem to be controversial, like I mentioned. And it sometimes seems that this is more of a passage to argue about than one to increase our desire for true godliness. One of the ways that, that Paul brings this focus on godliness to bear is that he makes applications for men and he makes applications for women. Overall, the call to godliness is a call to all believers, regardless of whether we're a man or a woman. But there are specific challenges and applications that he does make. So our second point is this. There are specific applications for men and women to give attention to in living a life of godliness. We began looking at verse 8 a couple weeks ago as it relates to to the emphasis on prayer in the church that Paul was making and has been making in this chapter. But that verse is also meant as a transition into things where Paul wants to to say about the issue of men and women regarding church order. So verse 8, once again, says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. One of the things that I think men probably especially Seem to value is personal strength. I admire those people who can lift lots of weights and who are great athletes. I'm not in that category, but there's nothing wrong with that. But this verse speaks of a different kind of strength. In it, we see really, we can see four things, I think, that are especially important for a man to be a godly man. First is this. Men should live in conscious submission to the Lord. Live in conscious submission to the Lord. Verse 8 begins with the word, therefore. So he's making connection with what he said in the earlier verses. In those verses, Paul spoke about the importance of prayer in the church. Prayer for the civil magistrates would make it possible for Christians to live in all godliness without government restriction. And in connection with this prayer is a concern to be a witness to the nations of the the world of Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for sinners. So in light of these important things, the men in the congregation need to be praying men. He speaks of them lifting up their hands in prayer. This was a common posture that we see in the Bible for prayer, and oftentimes it was done with the palms facing upward. And this was meant to symbolize submission to the Lord. It spoke of a willingness to serve him, no matter what the cost might be. So the prayers of the men of the church should be made by men who have submitted their lives to the Lord. They aren't just doing it for show. They're truly submitted to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, in a chapter that's concerned about proper relationships and proper order, the submission of men to Jesus Christ is fundamental. It's so important. Arrogance and godliness do not fit together. A strong, godly man is a humble man. He's a man who is more concerned about honoring the Lord than impressing other people. Second, men should be focused on personal holiness. Personal holiness. Paul calls on the man to lift up holy hands to the Lord. So living in conscious submission to Jesus Christ means that one is set apart to the Lord. That's what holy means. 1 Peter 1.16. God says, be holy because I am holy. To be holy involves putting away sin out of reverence for the Lord. It involves standing firm against temptation. It involves not purposely allowing sin to remain in our lives. It also means that when we do sin, we confess that sin to the Lord, we trust his forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, and with his help, work to put that sin away. Paul applied this to Timothy later in the letter. In 1 Timothy 5.2, he tells Timothy, Treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Men's relationships with women should be characterized by purity single men must have high standards in their relationships with young women. Your dating should be characterized by holiness. A strong, godly man is a man who pursues holiness in his life. Third, men should give attention to prayer. Paul calls them in in every place, so that's where you're at home, you're at the church, whether it's in your personal life, in every place he's called us to pray. Prayer is another example of what it looks like to live in conscious submission to the Lord, because we go to him for help, knowing that we're weak. We go to him for wisdom, knowing that there's all kinds of things that we do not understand. And so we, we show our love for others by offering up prayers on their behalf. Men are often, I think, tempted to be self-sufficient, to think that whatever comes, we are strong enough or smart enough to handle it. I know it's a temptation I struggle with, and actually my own lack of prayer is a testimony to that struggle. But, God, but Paul calls men to humble themselves and pray. God calls the men to be spiritual leaders. To do that, we need God's help. A strong, godly man is one who prays. And fourth, men should not be given to quarreling, but instead be peacemakers. Paul calls on men to live in his conscious submission to the Lord, be focused on personal holiness, give attention to prayer, all that without wrath and dissension. Men have a tendency to be competitive. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a lot of fun, especially if you win. But sometimes the drive to be competitive can result in being at odds with other people in a sinful way. People can get mad. People can hold on to grudges. People can make snide comments that get in the way of Christian unity, all in the name of being competitive. Scripture calls us to have humility of mind and to think of others as more important than ourselves. We're not to merely look out for our own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. We're to be people who are meek, people who are self-controlled. It's interesting to note here that as Paul talks about the qualifications for elders in the next chapter, in chapter 3, in verse 3, he says an elder must be a man who is not pugnacious. Most of us probably don't use that word a lot pugnacious. So he's not one who is quarrelsome. Instead, he should be known as a peacemaker. One who goes out of his ways to ensure that conflicts are addressed in ways that glorify God. So a strong, godly man is one who is not given to quarreling, but is instead a peacemaker. At this point now, Paul turns his attention to the women. Still talking about godliness But now he's focusing on the women. Verses 9 to 11. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So since Paul begins verse 9 with the word likewise... It indicates that just like he had a word for the men in relation to godly living, he now has a word for the women in relation to godly living as well. Now, I mentioned that strength is something that men seem to especially value. In a different way, the same thing I think is true for many women. I've heard, especially in more recent years, about the desire to be a strong woman. Now, I don't think that they're saying that in the same sense that a man would say it. And I don't know exactly how to define it, so I'm not gonna try. But I would venture to say that the words of exhortation that Paul has for Christian women are a good biblical description of what it means to be a strong woman. A strong woman is a godly woman. First, we see women should be conscious of dressing modestly and discreetly. There is no doubt in my mind that women are much prettier, more attractive than men are. And I'm personally very grateful (laughs) that God did it that way. So with that in mind, Paul speaks to the women about how they adorn themselves. Paul is not forbidding women to style their hair or wear jewelry or nice clothing. He's forbidding, I think, the imitation of elaborate new hairstyles and the extravagant dress of the Roman court. S.M. Ball did some study on this, and he says that these styles were depicted on Roman coins that were also used uh, at that time and even in Ephesus. And these styles spoke of excessive luxury, immoral, licentious lifestyles that were common among those who were in the Roman court. A modern-day equivalent might be promiscuous entertainers or actresses, whatever. It's a warning against being purposely seductive. I've been reading Rosario Butterfield's new book entitled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. It'll get your attention, beginning with the title. She's one of the best writers I've ever read. One of the lies that she addresses is this Modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back. She said, This is commonly believed, but it's a lie. Here's a few quotes from her book on this issue. She says, A godly woman is a modest woman, a godly woman's modesty is a sacred principle. Infused with God's grace. She says, modesty is a high point of moral beauty and vital virtue for women, requiring God's grace and personal grit. (laughs) A modest woman is a strong woman, a godly woman. Now, it's important that we see in verse 9 and 10 that the reason Paul even brings that up is to make a contrast with what Uh, with, with, with what should be characteristic of a godly woman. So look again at verses 9 and 10, see how they fit together. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So there's nothing wrong with looking nice, with dressing attractively, The intent is that a woman not be known primarily for the clothes that she wears, but for the kind of person that she is. So the second point is this. Women should be known for their good works. Christian women are to place a high value on godliness. They are people who are seeking to live in the fear of the Lord, having a genuine love for God, motivated by desire to please him in their life, that true godliness is going to result in lives that are truly praiseworthy. So, her actions, her priorities in life, her acts of service to others and in the church, those are the things that show the heart they have for the Lord. They're people who take a genuine interest in others, they show mercy to people in need, they give encouragement to those who are struggling, they do what they can to help in practical ways. They are examples of Christ and their work, whatever that work may be. They love their husbands. They love their children. They serve their families in countless ways. They are people of prayer. They are known for their kindness. To some, these things might seem kind of mundane, unimportant. I don't think that's true at all. In reality, they are fruits of true godliness. They give evidence of a beauty that goes beyond the outward appearance. I think it's what's spoken of in Proverbs 31. As there's always this, if you know that chapter, we're not going to read the whole thing, but there are just many and multifaceted works of a godly woman that are just extolled there. And it ends with these words. (coughs) Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands. Let her works praise her in the gates that's a strong woman that's a godly woman a third description of a godly woman is this women should learn should I'm sorry william should women should value learning the scriptures women should value learning the scriptures verse 11 a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness Now, this verse is tied into the following verses that we'll talk more about in more detail next week. But it actually communicates a very important description of a godly woman that I think is sometimes overlooked when trying to understand this passage. A godly woman is teachable. By the way, this also goes for a godly man. I mean, if a person is slow or uninterested in receiving instruction, then they are not a godly person. All believers, men and women alike, are to be people who have a great desire to learn the scriptures. We want to know what the word of God says. We want to understand the doctrines of our faith. We want to know the truth and know it well. We just finished spending several months working our way through Psalm 119 before we came to this passage or to this book. And the psalmist there just expresses well the great love and desire and commitment that every believer should have toward learning the scriptures. I'm just gonna read a number of passages just selected from those 176 verses. He says this, I will give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Oh, how I love your law, it's my meditation all the day. Your words a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. And I could add another 50 plus verses. That's the desire of a godly person, a godly woman. Strong women are those who value learning the scriptures. We're going to skip now to verse 15. It's a challenging verse to be sure, but I believe it has some important truth for us for women and men alike. Verse 15 says this, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. In verse 14, the apostle had just spoken about how Eve was deceived by Satan in the Garden of Eden. That was a terrible thing. Fell into transgression as a result. Was deceived into thinking that she could be like God and thereby throw off the limitations of God, of God-ordained authority. And she was terribly wrong. But that doesn't mean that her choice puts other women in a position of hopelessness. Not at all. Instead, it highlights several blessings of God that came in the midst of the failure. And I believe it especially highlights the blessing of marriage and motherhood. We know from 1 Timothy 4, verse 3, that there were teachers who were forbidding marriage. They said that men and women should abstain. From the pleasures that were part of marriage. Of course, that was absolutely false. The family is a true gift from God. So, this is a further application of Paul on the importance of being a godly woman. He's pointing out that, this next point, it is women that God especially uses in the foundational work of building a home and being a mother. Not every woman and not every man will be married. There's a great blessing in singleness. Paul pointed that out very strongly in 1 Corinthians 7. Not every woman's going to be a mother, but there's great blessing for all in being a godly woman, like Paul speaks of, so much blessing in that. We have all had or have a mother. Every home is foundational to society. Every Christian home is foundational to the kingdom of God. And God uses women in powerful ways in this great work. The birth of children is just such an amazing thing. God, of course, uses the woman to carry and nurture the child for nine months. I can't imagine the pain that's involved when a child is born. I've only witnessed it. And every birth is just overwhelmingly emotional and just full of wonder. The mother is the key To the loving nurture of her children, not only in the womb, but through life. Proverbs 31 speaks about this too. It goes in great detail of all that goes into a woman caring for her household. And it says this She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, and her husband also. And he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Over and over, you hear men and women speaking of how important their mother was to their upbringing. I'm always amazed when you got these big, tough, strong athletes and how often they'll say, hi, mom. They, a shout out to the mom, you know, by the toughest guys in the world. But mom is the one that they remember. <laughs> I think that's what he's talking about here, at least in part. A nation is only as strong as the families in that nation. And God has chosen to use women, strong, godly women, in particular, to build the home. I think that's one of the main messages of verse 15, but there's another one as well. That takes us to our third main point. The hope of men and women alike is the childbearing, the promised coming of the Messiah. New American Standard, which I use, translates verse 15 like this. It says, but women will be preserved, that word literally is saved. Women will be preserved or saved through the bearing of children. It obviously cannot mean that just by virtue of being a mother, you're saved. We know it doesn't mean that. So much of the scripture goes, that's not even a possibility. It also cannot mean that every woman will go through childbirth safely. Tragically, we know that's not true. This verse can also be translated this way. Women will be saved through the childbearing. And so so Paul had just spoken of creation and the whole tragedy of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, God pronounced consequences on the serpent, on the woman, on the man to the serpent he says this which actually turns out ends up being one of the most well-known verses in all of scripture Genesis 3:15 God says I will put enmity speaking to the serpent speaking to Satan I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel the seed of the woman It's the first prophecy in the Bible concerning the promise of the Messiah. So I believe Paul is encouraging women by reminding them that the Messiah was born of a woman. So I think we should see here a couple things. First, that the one great hope of salvation is Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who gave himself as a ransom for men and women alike. So in in the midst of the tragedy of the sin of Adam and Eve, God gives the promise of the Messiah. All men and all women are born into sin. That's true. All men and all women, therefore, need a Savior. The Son of God came into the world to save sinners. He was born of a woman. He was brought up largely by his mother Mary because it seems that Joseph died fairly early in his life. It was prophesied to Mary that her child would be opposed by many and that a sword would pierce her own soul as well. Mary was there when Jesus Christ was crucified. It's impossible just for me to imagine how unbearable it would be to watch your son die such a shameful and painful death. But praise God, three days later, he rose from the dead. And it's by his life and his death and his resurrection that men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be saved. The seed of the woman gave himself as a ransom for all. Finally, we're reminded of another important reality about salvation, continuing on the idea of godliness. All believers are called to persevere in faith, love, holiness, and wise discretion. Persevere. Persevere. When a woman has put her faith in the Savior, there must be a persevering in that faith. This is an exhortation to women, but this is something that is applicable, again, to all believers. When a person is saved, they are born again. Their life is transformed, new creatures in Christ. Therefore, there will be fruit in their life that gives evidence of that. In other words, there will be godliness. So, according to verse 15, every believer is called and enabled by God to continue in faith. In other words, resting confidently in God's promise, God's God's word of promise. Every believer is called and enabled to continue in love. So, to love God and to love people in the course of the duties that we have in life. Every believer is called and enabled to continue in holiness. We're to strive against temptation, stand firm against the many schemes of the devil. Every believer is called and enabled to live with wise discretion. We're to guard against arrogance and pride. We're to grow in personal discipline and self-control. In other words, we're to pursue godliness, that devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the exhortations to us, exhortations that we all need. I thank you for the promise of salvation that is so clear, I think, in this passage. But I want to thank you, too, for recognizing, well, first off, I thank you for your your wisdom in creating man, male and female, after your image. Thank you so much for that. I want to... Thank you that for even recognizing that there are temptations and issues that men especially face and have to be aware of. There are temptations and issues that women especially need to face and be aware of. But Lord, I thank you that we have the same Savior and that we are all are, are, are encouraged and exhorted to be godly people. Lord, help us, help us as we make those applications in our own life, even this afternoon. Help us as we do that if you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you recognize and admit before God that just like the rest of us, you're a sinner, that you have fallen short of what God has required of you. But also I would exhort you to say, Lord, I thank you that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners and I wanna receive him as my savior. I wanna receive him as the Lord of my life. I wanna live the rest of my days in conscious submission to Jesus Christ. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear off for those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.